hit record now. That's on. Minimise that. Brilliant. So, welcome to another sticky interview with MBM, Making Business Matter. It's the home of the and soft skills provider to the retail and manufacturing industry of the UK. This podcast, the whole idea about this podcast is to be sharing great thinkers and great concepts and great ideas with you to help you be the best version of yourself, especially in this time that we're living in right now with the crises that are happening. Uh, today, sharing the interview space with Ross Hardy, someone who's got phenomenal experience in crisis situations, in crisis negotiation, in crisis communication. I'm going to introduce him shortly with a little excerpt from his bio, which is um, astonishing reading that comes with astonishing experience, astonishing experiences. Ross Hardy spent a decade as a cliff edge crisis negotiator in one of the world's most notorious suicide spots. The team he founded and led there became the busiest search and rescue team in the UK and has rescued thousands of people to date. Just to add a little note in there, I live just down the road from this spot, Ross, and I know the areas very well, uh, locality and geographically, um, and it, yeah, world famous. The leadership lessons that he learned in those years, he now teaches through Discovery Hopes, a UK-based leadership consultancy. His latest online course, Smart Thinking for Times of Crisis, is available on Udemy, we'll talk a bit more about that later, and teaches tools for self team and organizational leaders for times of crisis and high pressure it's not just about today in the day and age of COVID-19 it's about the crisis that was probably on people's tables 12 weeks ago it's all about the crisis that will be on people's tables 24 weeks from now this may be unprecedented times but these are not unprecedented circumstances or ways of thinking this is why it's vital Ross massive thanks for being here really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation Going to dive straight into this with some of the things. I want to find out why you do what you do. We've had a little bit of a conversation. I want to find out why you do what you do, and I want you to tell the world why you do what you do. Okay. Well, firstly, as you, uh, as you mentioned, um, I spent 10 years as a crisis negotiator. Um, I led a team of crisis negotiators on a cliff edge, dealing with people who were coming there to end their lives from actually all over the world to that single spot. And uh, in that time, I had an awful lot of um, experiences of people in crisis, of course, learning how to manage people in crisis through our crisis negotiation um, techniques that we would use, and also learning how to lead myself, uh, to lead a team, and to lead an organisation that's dealing with crisis on a daily basis. Uh, the crises of people who were coming to Beachy Head, this, uh, the place I was, I was faced uh, with, you know, the intention of ending their lives, but also the kind of crises that normal organisations come across and crises that were unique to that organisation, the risks to the life of the team, uh, the challenges in fundraising and lots of different things that are associated around a, a kind of unusual uh, uh, workspace, if you like. So that was, my, uh, that was my experience for 10 years. And uh, as I stepped out of that, I realised that um, I began... Uh, to realize that there were there were so many opportunities to share uh, the, the the skills and the learning that, that I developed over that time with others, particularly in how we manage ourselves, our teams and our organizations uh, in preparation for and during times of crisis so that 's primarily why I do what I do because i 'm passionate about leaders i 'm passionate about leaders ability to influence the world to influence their world 
to transform their organizations, to actually build uh, organizations that really make a difference. And so I'm very excited to help equip leaders to uh, be better equipped to manage themselves, their teams and their organizations during those challenging times that we face. And obviously at the time of we're doing this, of course, particularly challenging times with uh, the pandemic, coronavirus and all the lockdowns. Yeah. And I think the interesting crossover, you talked about that leadership of the self. So the skills that you learn going through that, uh, that process and then how you reapply them to yourself, super important. Yeah. One thing that I am a big proponent of is, is, is self-leadership first. You cannot mm. give more to someone else than you have yourself. Therefore, if you're not able to take the lead on yourself, you cannot lead a situation. And no one managed their way out of a crisis. It takes leaders internally, externally, full works. So it's interesting when you're looking at, say, a suicide hotspot like that, where mm. people don't know, and I'm aware of the sensitivity that they don't know what the next step is. They can't see the next future step and they can't lead themselves out of that situation. So the mm -hmm. only course of action they have is, is to complete in that exercise. Um, and then again, you know, scale up, you transfer that over into business, you know, business people, you know, making themselves redundant or taking, um, taking actions which aren't appropriate to the growth of that business in tricky situations. Yeah. You know, it's the same kind of thinking that it creates that that um, detrimental outcome. I think is is the closest I can get to that. Um, yes, yeah. so super important. So, how did you become a crisis negotiator? Because I mean, it's not kind of the line of work you suddenly look for a job. Oh, look, there's a a, a post in the job centre. I think I'll go and do that because it sounds interesting. There's there's a calling <laughs> that comes with that for sure, Ross. Absolutely. I mean, I I actually I used to be a church leader. I've led a couple of churches, uh, spend a whole number of years leading churches. And um, and I was actually um, just praying one Sunday morning. And then I got such an impression about, and I, I live local to this suicide spot. And I knew the situations that were going on there. And that they were in the paper week in, week out, the recoveries and so on. And so it was very much uh, something I've been aware of for many years. But I just suddenly really got such an, uh, an impression about the importance of, of reaching these people. And I had in my mind this picture of these two people patrolling Beachy Head, uh, reaching out to the suicidal, actually going out and, and you know, interacting with people on the cliff edge and actually uh, hopefully interacting with them in such a way to de-escalate crisis and, and, and get them to choose life. And so, um, so it really started from there. I started actually with very little clue of how to do it. We just started putting things uh, together. We learned a lot from uh, some materials we had from the FBI crisis negotiation uh, unit in Quantico. Uh, we had bits and pieces from various different sources that we brought together to start to develop a training uh, to actually, uh, you know, uh, implement crisis negotiation with these people. Each year. So it took us about a year from that moment. I think it was a year and one week before we, um, we became operational and we started with a little team of six so um yeah so that was back in uh, 2003 and we began in august 2004 i've got to ask you know is there is a level of sensitivity with what you're you were working at this point and i'm aware uh, uh working in in middle management groups predominantly yeah that there is a reticence to ask questions there is a hesitation to get involved with people where mental health is is prevalent 
So whether it's an anxiety attack, PTSD, different, whatever, a lot of leaders feel nervous about asking the right question because, or asking any question because they feel it might be right or wrong. It may be taken the wrong way. They have a fear it may make the situation worse. So mm-hmm. in having that fear, they then therefore they don't take any action at all. How do you mm-hmm. go about ratifying your content, your questions and your approaches before you go out there on the edge and actually go into the real, as it were? Well, one of the things we actually realized quite quickly as we began to assess how best to, uh, to negotiate a crisis, um, hopefully for someone to choose life, was we realized that actually we couldn't beat around the bush. We couldn't actually, um, we couldn't kind of sidestep the major questions. So we actually had to begin to face the crisis people were struggling with head on. Uh, now, there were, were variations in this, but they would, uh, in its extreme, it would be, you know, the person that I was convinced was suicidal on the cliff edge, I would simply, one of my first questions after introducing myself uh, would be, um, so what's brought you to the point of wanting to commit suicide? I would get directly to the point that they... Uh, of, of why they've come there and what was in their mind. And then we talk from there. Then we've, well, I've already said, actually, it's safe to talk about this stuff. You don't, you're not going to suddenly surprise me. You're not going to suddenly overwhelm me with your response. Um, and I think that's often uh, what can happen in our communication. We're so good at, um, you know, we're, we're replying to, how are you with, fine, how are you? You know, it's our kind of very British way. And, and uh, uh, we can often sidestep the real issues that people are going through. And so, so in the extreme, we would get directly to the point. Now, I, I, aside from that, I would actually stop and I'd ask someone, how are you? Um, you know, what's going on? I'd ask them some, some kind of open questions and, and give them space to actually begin to talk. And, and then I'd listen. And then from that, I'd begin to pick up the, the signals and the concerns. But... But one thing I would always say to someone, if they're, if they're ever concerned about someone's welfare, um, the best thing you can do is to actually, you know, be fairly direct, kind, but direct in asking someone, actually, how are, how are you? What's going on with this? Are you okay? Uh, you know, or to the extreme, obviously, if you're concerned for someone's welfare, um, you know, and whether they might harm themselves, you know, um, you know are you feeling suicidal? Um, I've learned that you can say absolutely anything to anybody as long as you say it with absolute love and respect. If you absolutely. genuinely have a concern about someone's mental well-being, physical well-being, purely getting involved in asking the question from a place of that love and respect, um, from genuine curiosity as a leader to support the people in your team and develop those people, you can ask them, how are you? And create the space where actually they've got time to think about that and formulate a response. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think the point you were raising is, you know, people mincing the words and they're saying, how are you? I can't remember where the quote comes from. I've heard it. It is about language being the the tool for us to make excuses and cover things up. Mm -hmm. So we say these pleasantries in passing, yet they don't mean anything and they're hollow until we actually sit in that space and go, I've observed this. I'm worried about this. I care about you in this form. I would like to know what's happening here and going to the heart of the matter. Mm. 
absolutely. And the key with all of this um, is it's not just about asking the questions, it's about listening. And it's not just listening with a, a number of, um, you know, techniques because um, there are some, you know, active listening and all its active listening techniques are fantastic. But ultimately, if we're not listening to understand someone and we're not listening in order to, in, to let them know that we're understanding them, then actually we've kind of missed the mark. But if we give people space, if we're asking people questions and actually we're stopping and we're giving people space to respond uh, honestly and we're saying it's okay, you can respond honestly, you can respond with challenging stuff, you don't have to pretend to be all right, then, then actually we begin to um, see people open up and begin to share what's really going on. And, and that in itself is the most powerful thing we can do for any individual person. Uh, the power of listening is an incredible tool. Uh, I can't, uh, can't, can't underestimate its, its importance and its value. Um, you know, one of the things we used to find on a crisis negotiation, I mean, I, would, I, I once dealt with a person who had just um, murdered someone. They had, they'd killed someone and come to the, to the cliff top with the intention of ending their life. Um, that's a pretty challenging negotiation. They know that actually behind me, okay, 100 metres behind me, but behind me are the police, and those police are going to have to arrest that person, and she's going to spend however long in in uh, prison from that moment onwards. She knows that situation is going to happen, but I'm there, and I'm, I'm listening to her, thinking to myself, my goodness, you know, how am I going to help this person? She's, she's going to die. She wants to die, but, you know, there's no... You know, in one sense, there's no reason for her to live at this precise amount of time. All she, all she can see is a, is a moment ahead, which is going to involve prison and, and you know, incarceration. And uh, I, I realised then through some of the things, perhaps we'll get onto in a little bit, uh, actually in managing our own smart thinking, that I, uh, that I actually had to change that way of thinking. And I, and I realised, of course, listening is the best thing I can do. And if I can just listen to this person, then the, the, the greatest, in the greatest likelihood, she's going to choose to live and actually she did um, and it was a, an incredible story um, but she chose to live but it took simply listening to her so that listening in itself de-escalates um, internal crises in people in, in a massive way it's a powerful powerful tool it's the greatest tool we have for de demonstrating uh, demonstrating empathy for building rapport and uh, it really is a significant tool for for crisis but actually for any um situation where we're dealing with other people agreed and we teach that as as part of our coach or part of the coaching courses that we run you know what you can learn about someone in in less than seven minutes when you actually pay attention is mind-blowing for some people they may have worked with these people for seven years and in seven minutes of focused listening just to that individual they found out they find out more than they ever knew in that seven-year period and the relationship completely changes because they're just mm. listening and, but they're act, you know actually actively paying attention to that individual for the individual mm. not for themselves yeah absolutely that's, that's amazing where does this thing cross over? So I'm, we're gonna, I want to talk about how we bridge into this space in a little bit. So how does what you learned on the cliff edge, quite literally, how does that then kind of transfer into the business world that you're now working? 
Well, I think the, the first thing, and, and you you, uh, you mentioned this earlier on, the most important thing in, in leadership is, is, is how we lead ourselves, first and foremost. Actually, if we can't lead ourselves well, then everything else is going to be, um, uh, you know, it's going to be less than perfect from that moment onwards. And so one of the one of the skills that we had to learn within the crisis negotiation environment was actually how to manage ourselves when under anxiety because if you imagine if you're dealing with someone on a cliff edge so for example you know you're dealing with a, uh, a an intoxicated teenager uh, walking along on the edge of a cliff and I mean literally you know on the last inch or two of a cliff can't stand up straight walking backwards and forwards talking to you highly agitated uh you know that they're, they're going through a major crisis but that will certainly cause anxiety to the person doing the negotiation you know every moment your kind of hearts in your mouth and actually actually you you begin to realize you have to manage that anxiety because there's a there's a really significant thing about anxiety it can have it's plus points it can spur us on it can encourage us it can cause us to act it can cause us to move but actually it um any of us that have experienced a, a heavy level of anxiety will also recognize that feeling of not being able to make a decision to feeling stuck to feeling confused to feeling unsure really which way to go and, and uh, sort of um scientific uh, kind of studies in the last few years have, have begun to discover more and more about why that is and one of those studies uh, discovered that the neurons in the prefrontal cortex that executive part of our brain are disrupted during times of anxiety response so actually when you think about it those uh, that that executive part of our brain is that's the part we use for planning and decision making and problem solving self-control you know acting with long-term goals in mind controlling kind of reflexive behaviors you know that would be really short-sighted all the kind of things that we desperately need to be uh, operating to 100% in and and controlling during a crisis and yet anxiety itself disrupts the neurons in that part of our brain so it actually affects our ability to think smartly so there's a real need in our self-leadership for de-escalating anxiety and re-engaging smart thinking. And there's some really simple tools that we would use for that. The first of those uh, is emotion labeling. So uh, it's part of our um, kind of um, emotional intelligence kind of armory. It's part of our knowing ourselves. And it's about stopping and saying, what is it I'm feeling? Uh, and actually looking to, to label it, not just as, you know, assuming it's just some negative thought or emotion here, but actually what is that feeling? What, what, what name would I give it? It might be um, anxiety, it might be dread, it might be uh, terror, it might be, you know, um, I just feel down in the dumps. Whatever it is, it, it doesn't matter in one sense, uh, you know, get exactly right. It's a personal understanding of what you uh, identify that that emotion to be but as part of the process of looking at it and understanding it there's a de-escalation that actually goes on in that emotion we begin to almost uh, it's a little bit like uh, imagine being out in sea in a little boat and it's there's one thing being stuck in the middle of a fog bank yeah you can't see which way's which you don't know which way to head but if you were to move yourself 100 meters out from that fog bank Yes, you can see the fog bank, it's still there, it still exists, but it's a whole different thing. Now you're in the sunlight and you can see 
all the other environment around you, all the other options that are around you. You can see how to navigate around that fog bank. Or so in, in one sense, what happens is we label our emotions as we we begin to step out of the intensity of the feelings of those emotions and we begin to see them uh, from a distance. So we're actually looking at a kind of a bigger picture of it. We step out of the fog bank, we begin to see it for what it is, but actually the process of trying to understand it and label it has actually drawn us out from being within the midst of its, its negative expression to a little bit removed it's the fog bank still there we still might sense the coldness on the breeze you know but we're not actually immersed in it to the same degree so that's the first thing the second thing then is identifying the thought that the emotion rode in on so more often than not um so you know take that example i was talking about uh, uh, in crisis negotiation a little while ago i my anxiety was i can't help this lady she's going to die so that was the thought it was right in on. I can't help this lady, she's going to die. But that thought carried anxiety. So I suddenly felt anxiety, and that anxiety started to disrupt my smart thinking. All of a sudden, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know how to help her. I'm starting to get more caught up in what I'm doing and what I'm thinking than her, and actually in, in helping her because I'm getting anxious about the, poss the lack of possibilities in front of me. So in that moment of time, and it's possible to do this even whilst you're actively listening to someone, I caught hold of that, that emotion. I said, I'm feeling anxious. This is why I'm feeling anxious. I identified those two things. Immediately, it began to de-escalate that negative emotion. And as it began to de-escalate that negative emotion, it, uh, it started to also re-engage that prefrontal cortex. It started to re-engage that smart executive thinking. So that was the that was the first two stages. The next stage then is cognitive reappraisal. It's taking hold of that thought that that negative emotion was riding in on and changing it to be more positive, or if you can't make it positive, at least more neutral than negative. So we're changing that thought. So I'm taking that thought, there's nothing I can do to help this lady, she's going to die. I'm taking that thought and I'm saying, I don't know... I know this lady's going to you know, have a challenging future if she chooses to live, but I know at this moment in time, I can at least listen to her. That's the most powerful thing I can do. And I give her the greatest chance for survival. So I begin to take hold of a different thought that actually I can listen to her and that's powerful. And in doing so, I start to, that, that positive, that more positive thought carries with it more positive emotions hope is rising rising up in me expectation is rising up in me in one sense i'm taking another step back from the fog bank i'm beginning to see more possibilities to navigate around this situation than i did do before and it's de-escalating again those negative emotions even further and re-engaging re that smart thinking so i'm beginning to to be have more effective planning decision making problem solving skills they're being re-engaged as my executive thinking is being re-engaged so those those skills for self-leadership are, are really significant because if we don't realize that smart thinking is, disin, is disempowered by, uh, by anxiety and negative emotions, that we won't realize that our thinking is becoming more and more flawed the further we go into a deep and significant crisis. Huge value in all of that. And I know from kind of a newer science, a neurological point of view, what happens, you know, is the primordial brain kicks in, your amygdala starts going um, absolutely crazy, 
the neocortex shut down as the, as the blood starts getting squeezed out. Um, and you're not thinking, you're thinking with your four Fs, your fight, flight, flock and freeze. So your natural instincts are starting to kick in. But that logic, that data processing, that problem solving has gone out the window, which is completely normal. Because, you know, what your brain doesn't want you to do is start counting how many teeth the tiger's got when the tiger's come to kill you. It wants you to move. I get it. But the problem with that is, is your brain cannot differentiate between a job interview and a tiger attack. So you, and you talk about that anxiety kicking in is no, okay, where is, what am I focusing on? Am I focusing on how good pe I think people think I am? All those things. So that time of crisis becomes a job interview in, for some people. For other people, it might be a murder situation. The brain shuts down. We go into this kind of this fight, this um, survival instinct. And all we can come up with is, is a solution that um, closes that off as quickly as possible in one way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Amazing points you added in there. Emotion labeling. Where did the emotion ride in on that? And cognitive reappraisal. The one thing that yep. I picked up in your language, and I've shared part of this with other people, and we share this with our daughter as well, is people saying, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm anxious. Well, you're not those things. And your language was that I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling angry. You know, you're, you're, it's not categorizing you're kind of partitioning it to a it's a sensation you're feeling you're not the emotion you're not lost in the emotion you are yeah. ross experiencing the emotion yeah. and then you can do like you say you do that cognitive reappraisal oh i'm feeling like this okay what's the what's the reverse of that okay where can i find value in that what's the positive opposite okay how do i shift that up and move it forward so that we shift the mindset we readjust kind of the, the, the focus and the importance. And then we go to that direction. Like, well, actually, based on what I can see now, what can I do with this? What can I do differently? Yeah. Mm, absolutely. I think, you know, so often, uh, you, I mean, just take the example I just, just gave you with, with the fog bank. You know, the, the boat in the fog bank isn't the fog bank. You know, it's, it's experiencing a moment in time in the atmosphere that, that is actually affecting you the people on that boat's ability to see and to act, it's restricting them in certain ways. And actually, when we begin to realize that there is, there is a way for us to step back. Now, you know, we can de-escalate anxiety. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that we have a, you know, a magic pill and all of a sudden anxiety's gone and everything's fine. It's not, it's not like that, but actually we can de-escalate it to the extent that we can, we can kind of, you know, reverse course and step out of that fog bank, and then we can begin to manage things in a different way. We begin to see that it, yeah, it isn't us. It's, it's an experience we're having. It's a moment in time. It's something that is happening to us. It is a response that is going on within us, but it isn't us. It's not our. It's not our identity, and uh, and this is so in, important as well uh, when we look to, to to what we believe about ourselves. Uh, and you know, many of those that that find themselves in in personal uh, crises uh, you know have, have begun to believe things about themselves that, that aren't true their, their their understanding is shaped on their their experiences and they're, they're starting as you've said almost to I to identify themselves with the feelings that they're feeling and they are very different things so and, and that's huge you know it's because what you're thinking about in, the, in that crisis situation, you're standing on the edge of the cliff and you've got that, that hopelessness potentially kicking in. I was like, this woman has got, you know, some serious stuff in front of her. 
Mm. Am I skilled enough? Am I capable of doing this? What will people think if this, you know, if she completes? What will people think of me? What all of that stuff starts to swim around here, and it just starts to turn into this, you know, this whirlwind, an absolute storm. Um, yeah. And when I'm, you know, there's, there's certain elements I teach. One, when you're talking to someone and you're giving feedback or you're coaching, whether it's a crisis situation, whatever, is what you think of people is how you treat them. And yeah. I didn't learn this till much later in my life, but the content of your head dictates the content of your mouth. So if you start thinking that this woman is going to complete, the content of your mouth is going to start projecting words, intonation, you know, cadence, whatever, that's actually going to yeah. encourage that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And then what you think of a situation is what it becomes. If you truly believe that you could not have done that or could not have resolved and, and got the best possible outcome out of that situation, you wouldn't have been striving to make it happen. Your actions then would have betrayed you and would have gone to actually what you were thinking about. And That's right. that last stage that I share with people is what you think of yourself is what you'll achieve. So if actually you are on the edge of the cliff and you're the person that's looking to complete at that point in time, what you think of yourself is what you'll achieve. If you're the person doing the crisis negotiation, you know, in that, again, if you think you've got the skills to actually um, overachieve and over deliver that, then you're more likely to actually succeed in that environment in that space. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What you're thinking is so key um, because as you say, it's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to betray what we're thinking by what we begin to say, how we begin to act. Um, we can all equally take, uh, you know, begin to, uh, one of the interesting things I, I find very helpful is how I can change my thinking by how I, what I declare with my mouth. So I'm very intentional to say certain things, to make certain statements about myself, because I know that I have a tendency to think the opposite, to think some negative thing. So instead I would start to make some declaration. Uh, you know, it might be, for example, you know, sharing, uh, you know, that the information, information I have is valuable to other people and that actually they, they will value hearing it, you know, so I might have a, a negative thought about that going oh well, no one wants to hear this this isn't of any interest to anybody you know it's that's a lie but it's going to start to affect the way I communicate it's going to start to affect the 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 kind of influence I have on other people they're going to start to feel there's something not quite comfortable here it's, it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy we start to actually uh, almost push people away by how we're reacting to our thinking so you know in a situation like that I would start to say to myself you know actually I have um, valuable things to share. I have uh, information that's important for other people to hear. The things that I have to share actually can make a massive difference to people's way of life, to people's leadership and so on. So actually I'm making an intentional kind of declaration and in doing so I'm kind of readjusting some of those thoughts and I'm, I'm intentionally starting to replace that thought and those words with with the right words so i can begin to 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 adjust course with my thinking and i think uh, you know to use another kind of ship analogy some of those thoughts you know they're they're, they're quite significant you know maybe we've they've been going on for a long time they're a little bit more like you know the big old tankers sometimes they take a little bit of turning you know we have to keep working keep working it's not we're not going to turn on the sixpence you know it's, it may take a few miles of kind of turning the wheel and speaking the right things but actually if we're consistent in those kind of declarations and consistent in taking hold of those thoughts and and that and cognitive reappraisal like we were talking about earlier taking that thought and being making it more positive then soon enough it becomes uh, a behavior it becomes 
something that's part of us. It's not something we're having to do. It's something that we are. It's something that really is being expressed to us, you know, even in the challenging times. It's our go-to response, you know, in a, even in a negative moment. So, but it sometimes takes a bit of work to establish that. And you're right, it does. And something like, um, you know, is journaling, positive, journaling, positive confirmation. So when you have these moments, when you're working in a training room and delivering content and someone in the room says something, you're like, oh, penny drops. That's amazing. I said the right thing. I approached it in the right way. Um, when I do the live trainings, when I'm doing that, okay, I've said the right thing. I've included the right. Okay, how do I make sure I do that again? Because mm. we're capable of doing those things. It's just that, like you say, that voice of the critic kicks in. Oh, yeah, but that yeah. was yesterday. You're not as good today. And, you know, and it's, and it's switched up. Well, actually, I did it yesterday, so therefore I can do it again today. I can go into this mm. conversation with the skills and the things that I learned from last time. And you know what? Maybe last time wasn't the best version of me. Maybe it was only mm. 60%. I know yeah. it was 60%. So therefore, what can I do to adjust it to make it 70% today? And you just keep yeah. taking those steps to keep moving the mindset and the capacity and the ability and just keep doing what you do so well and layer it because you know you can and you know it has an impact and it adds value. Huge. Absolutely. Huge. Yeah. So let's get into some definition pieces now then. From kind of a leadership and a business point of view, what is a time of crisis? Well, a crisis space is going to be any kind of place of intense difficulty or danger. So um, from a leadership point of view, it can be personal it can be organization wide it can be something that the uh, the nation's experiencing or as we're seeing at the moment a, a fairly rare occurrence but something we're we're currently seeing at the time we're we're recording this you know we're seeing a a crisis that is across the nations it's affecting the majority of the world at the moment because of this pandemic and we're seeing a not just the, the health crisis but we're seeing the effects of, of lockdowns we're seeing the uh, the um the effects on business, we're seeing the effects on individuals, we're seeing the effects on mental health. There's, there's, you know, when we really stop and consider it, there's a thousand different effects this crisis. But so a crisis can be, a crisis can be different depending on the individual, the organisation, the team. So some, uh, you know, let's face it, as a, as a team of crisis negotiators, you know, dealing with someone who's feeling suicidal uh, was our bread and butter it was a daily experience for us if you were a team who suddenly had a member of your team or or someone that was visiting your office suddenly suicidal and and you know and capable of going through with that act in your presence then that becomes a crisis for your team so those two two events are the same but for one it's 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 a it's sadly normal everyday life and for another it's it's a crisis so i think one of the things to say with crisis is that what affects one person or one team or one organization um doesn't have to affect another person team or organization in the same way so it's whatever we face that is in, that causes us our team or organization intense difficulty or danger so it's any kind of event leading up to that so it could within the, the um, with an organization it could be obviously a, a major recession it could be uh, the loss of a key client it could be uh, the loss of a key employee it could be some uh, failure in the manufacturing process it could be um, some kind of um, loss of our intellectual property it could there's a whole manner of things it could be an individual's uh, 
a negative experience. They make a mistake, and it causes a kind of ripple through the through the company. So, so crisis is a is a is a one of those words that can cover a multitude of things. Um, all it really needs is that that sense of intense difficulty or danger to it. Um, as you were saying that, you know, one one man's crises or one person's crises may be another person's normal everyday activity even boiling it down to the point of running out a company headed paper for an individual while they're dealing with a complaint could be the end of their day for them kind of mentally because it's so frustrating Um, and like you say for another person dealing with those highly volatile situations uh, you know those key tipping points uh, as in beachhead in those moments Again, that's that's almost everyday work for some people because they're practiced. Mm-hmm. And the phrase yeah. that I've said countless times over the last four five weeks or so is people don't rise to the expectation they they fall back to the level of training. So mm-hmm. what it is we're used to doing, what it is we've learned to do when we curated that tension, friction, and, and stress before the event happens, that's the stuff yeah. that's going to start to come out when we when we need to to display those skills most. Super important. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <sighs> And I think you've answered some of it in part, and I'm keen to, if there's anything else to dive into, you know, what causes a crisis? Well, I, I think, again, that, that is so um, difficult depending on the individual situation. It can be a whole manner of things. When, when we talk about crisis on an organisational level, which can then obviously spill over to, to a crisis for individual team members and, and for leaders, then the, the reality with my kind of studying of things is that, is that the majority of it, the, the cause of the crisis is a lack of being prepared. So if you look at crisis kind of statistics from around the world, then there's a, there's a massive percentage of crises affecting organisations that are, are internal to the organisation. So it works out something like um, almost three quarters of crises. So if you think about that, there is a potential with the right uh, thinking, uh, the right actions, the right uh, preparations to avert three quarters of crises. Um, and but that takes uh, actually a, a moment of planning. It takes actually part of uh, it takes kind of looking and considering the options. Now. Um, Earlier on, you were asking me about, you know, how do some of those skills um, that I learned at Beachy Head and uh, doing uh, leading the crisis team there, how do they, um, how they kind of worked out into the business environment? And and uh, there were obviously we looked at the um, individual leadership, self leadership. There's also team leadership and and the organisational leadership. And if we take organisational leadership as an example. One of the ways, one of the most simple ways to begin to be more crisis proof is to stress test our organisations. Now, certain aspects of the organisation, um, you know, may require more complexity to this, but in its simplest form, stress testing our organisation is about taking a potential scenario and kind of, you know, sitting with a, a few key kind of leaders or our, t- our teams or whatever, and actually thrashing out what would happen if we experience this. 
what would happen if we experience this now you know i i used to say actually you know sometimes take take a wild one take an unusual crisis something you think well that's never going to happen but you know take hold of some of these things sometimes you can almost have a laugh with those but actually if you turn the organization you realize that it starts to reveal places that are strong, that would, that would perhaps operate very well, and then all of a sudden glaring inadequacies or, or, or weaknesses. And it gives us an opportunity then to, to build in strength. And we can't, we can't necessarily prepare for every single eventuality we're going to face. But if we take a, a good variation, a good kind of spread of eventualities, and we, we, we kind of create scenarios out of those and we, we test our organisation with it and think how would our organisation react, we're going to start to see um, places that regularly come up as being weak or needing improvement or needing change. And if we can then say, well, okay, let's begin to, 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 to create change in that area, let's begin to build in strength or we see an area that's consistently weak, but we can't necessarily do anything about it. But what we can do is build strength around it that will help support that weak area in a, in a time of crisis. If we begin to do that, then we know that we've suddenly made ourselves far more resilient to a whole load of different crises. Um, so crises that we haven't yet imagined. So at the moment, again, we're dealing with uh, a worldwide pandemic it's not our everyday occurrence it's not something that we necessarily even would have considered putting down as part of kind of stress testing and crisis preparing and crisis proofing organizations but it goes to show that the more preparation we do in general in kind of stress testing organizations the stronger we can build them so that when we face crises we can better navigate them and hopefully there will be a number of crises that we're never ever going to experience because we've actually uh, prepared beforehand and, and filled in those weak places. Yeah, exactly that. And I've been part of disaster recovery programs inside of businesses as well. And we've done kind of the, the almost the stress testing uh, with strange scenarios that you may not think ever happen, but they do happen on occasion. The unexploded World War II bombs in car parks and stuff that shut down parts of cities, all that sort of stuff. And I think there's a certain amount of pressure testing stuff that you have got on a physical level, you know, um, testing the fire alarms. You do it on a weekly basis. But even when you do your fire evacuation, actually locking several fire exits so they have to go in a different direction, you pressure test it to see what comes up. The other element is then looking at your curated tension. So potentially, you know, not pressure testing or putting it, but holding a space where we go, okay, actually, what do we need to think about this? How do we need to approach this? Is this going to work? You know, what are our competitors going to do? Is this product going to be outdated and obsolete in five years? How do we make that happen in three years so that we can actually bring a new service in that lasts another five years on top of that? You know, it's creating those tensions and those frictions necessarily and intentionally so that you can find the weak points and you can find the strengths as well. And I think a lot of these things is, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's, it's finding out who's got the thinking capacity. It's an approach. It's a, it's a way we mm. think, it's a way we communicate. How do we get the right information so that we can give the right tools to the people in our business? Um, because if I'm thinking, okay, the, the end is nigh and I'm running around um, thinking this is the end of the business and I pull the drawbridge up and I'm not communicating out mm. what message is that sending how is that supporting the people in the business mm. um, yeah 
So it's finding out who's got the right thinking, who's got the, the most you know smart thinking that's going to create yeah. the outcomes that's going to push people forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that leads to another part that obviously we've looked at how we can lead ourselves uh, within a crisis in order to re-engage smart thinking. But uh, it then leads on to an, another part of of uh, where the what we learned to on the clifftops was transferable into um, everyday kind of leadership, into team leadership and into businesses. And that's actually how we, how we lead our teams during times of crisis. And again, a lot of that relates to skills that are, would be uh, at home on the cliff edge in crisis negotiation as they can be within the individual relationships going on within a, a work environment. And, and that's very much based around listening and building empathy and letting people share where they're at, who they're, uh, how they're feeling, uh, why they're feeling that, actually giving people opportunity to, to express uh, you know, what's going on in the midst of a crisis. Uh, you know, that, that's really significant because that is, again, part of the process of de-escalating negative emotions and re-engaging smart thinking in them. But if we also make that part of who we are, if we actually care and spare time for our teams and we actually spend time to, to, to you know, in the midst of all our business and all the important things that we need to communicate to them and, and talk about that actually, if we, if we make sure that somewhere within those, those relationships we're, we're, we're building time to actually actually care about the individual and listen to the, the individual then we're constantly developing um empathy and that um one of the one of the original uh, kind of models we we used at beachhead was a, a model called the behavioral infant stairway model which the fbi used and it's basically about um active listening over time and that active listening um demonstrates empathy which builds rapport which then um develops influence and then we added on once we've got influence then we can encourage behavioral change who obviously on a cliff edge scenario the person chooses to come back and chooses to live um so uh the reason i'm saying this about how we find the, the smart thinkers for for how we we stress test and, and crisis proof and crisis prepare organizations is that that actually if we if we go through this with our team then we can help them um understand what they're feeling and why when they're faced with a crisis scenario so at the moment we've got teams all over the place uh many of them working from home suddenly faced with you know uh, lots of challenges technological challenges that they're perhaps they're not used to in the stuff they're having to do from home they're they're maybe worried about their jobs they're worried about the future they're worried about the economy they're worried about their families they're worried about their health there's there's so many things going on in people's lives uh, and the great thing with kind of active listening is it works as effectively over phone or Zoom or Skype as it does, or you know, or FaceTime as it does face to face on a cliff edge. It's it's just as powerful. Um, but actually, there's this there's this place where when we're building and developing empathy, we're actually letting people uh, explore as you're asking people open questions. So, uh, how are you feeling? What you know? What's going on? Actually, giving people space. You're, you're giving, you're listening, you're, you're giving spaces of silence, letting people actually begin to consider what is it I'm really thinking at the moment? What is it I'm really feeling? And as they begin to share that, then actually what, what are they doing? They're doing exactly what we did in our first stage of self-leadership. They're labeling their emotions, 
and they're identifying the thought that the emotion's riding in on. So by just talking about those things that you're listening to them about, uh, you know, giving them space to, and, and asking them to, to share about, you're, you are actually helping them de-escalate the negative emotions, which is re-engaging smart thinking. Um, and then you can use other tools. So we would use what um, is possibly called problem solving using collaborative analysis, but ultimately, ultimately simply means me saying, have you thought about and offering them a thought to consider? I'm not telling them what to think. I'm not telling them, I'm not saying you should do this like I'm their father or something, you know. I'm actually, I'm actually giving them a thought and I'm saying, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? It gives someone an opportunity to take hold of that thought, to kind of look at it from every facet, to look at the pros and cons, to talk it through because you're still listening to them. And actually when they see that it's valuable, they can take hold of it from themselves, they can embrace it. And then immediately they've carried on with that process, the third stage of our self-leadership process, collaborative, uh, sorry, um, cognitive reappraisal, they've taken hold of that original negative thought and they've gone, actually, this is a better thought, I'm gonna think this instead. So when we, when we use those kind of skills with our team, during a time of crisis, or even just in a general kind of um, way in our, in our everyday interactions, then we begin to re-engage their smart thinking and it enables them to think more clearly when we're faced with crisis. Whether it's a real crisis, such as all those things that people are currently experiencing, or whether it's a crisis scenario. Because one of the problems we have when we look at crisis scenarios is that if you look at a, a fairly realistic crisis scenario, it can stir up all the negative emotions. It can stir up the anxiety. We can look and go, oh my goodness, the business could fail. I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage. I'd lose the house. You know, all of a sudden it's blown out of, you know, from this one little scenario to all these feelings connected with all these negative thoughts. And even though it's still only a scenario, it's affecting our smart thinking. We're not thinking as clearly. So therefore we can't plan around it. We're in the middle of the fog bank, even though it's a theoretical one that we're, look, that we're considering. And we don't know which way to turn to go out, which is the quickest way out of this fog bank. But when we're actually listening to our team and when we're, when we're speaking uh, uh, to our team and letting them share what they're feeling, what they're thinking, we're perhaps offering them some thoughts uh, that they can consider for themselves that would be better thoughts to have. We're actually de-escalating those negative emotions. We're re-engaging that smart thinking. They're stepping out of the fog bank. So they began being be able to think more effectively, uh, more powerfully using that executive thinking. You know, their planning ability is stronger, their decision-making ability is stronger, their problem-solving ability is stronger, their self-control and controlling any kind of reflexive behaviors, all of those things are stronger. Therefore, they're gonna be far more effective uh, when we're considering actually how are we going to manage this potential crisis scenario and how it would affect our business when we're stress testing it. So when we apply that to our teams, then we have a team that are far more effective, they're gonna come up with far better solutions that are gonna see, um, see problems that they wouldn't otherwise uh, perhaps have seen, would see solutions that they wouldn't have otherwise have seen, and therefore we're gonna be far more crisis-proof and crisis-prepared afterwards. So it's really a powerful thing just to be listening. So if we, if we apply that on a kind of regular basis to the way we lead our teams, 
that actually we care enough to to sometimes put aside the busyness of the work that we're that, that we're at to actually say this is about you this is about me understanding you and making you feel understood then that is such a powerful tool it actually it brings out of our team members their, their greatest abilities, their best abilities. It brings them to the top of their game. And that's so important because after all, people are on the team because presumably they deserve to be there. They're on the team because they have skills and abilities that actually you really want as part of your organization. So you want those abilities working to their best. So when we do that in a, in a kind of crisis preparedness way by uh, before we're stress testing then we can actually stress test in a kind of deeper and more effective way because as soon as someone's dealing with the negative emotions um, they know how to manage them they're starting to realize yeah okay i'm feeling anxious at the moment uh this is why so i'm just replacing that thought and they can then think about something more clearly because uh, it kind of brings me on to, to one key thing that the problem with negative emotions is they are, of course, unpleasant. They're designed to make us react for our own, as you were saying earlier, for our own benefit to survive some dangerous moment, to run away from the wild beast, to escape from the, the fire, from the, from the dangerous moment. But actually, left to, to just keep uh, uh, affecting us over a longer period of time, they're unpleasant. They have negative effects on our bodies. They, they actually they damage us. They don't help us. So, you know, we've got this, this kind of negative experience that comes with the negative emotions. So, of course, our normal reaction to that is actually if we know something causes anxiety, um, the biggest um, danger is, um, is from our, our most likely response. And that is that area causes anxiety. So therefore, I'm going to step away from that. I'm going to hide from it. I'm going to ignore it. So we could say that the greatest danger for being crisis prepared whether it be personal a team-wide or organization-wide is denial it's actually the, the the decision to put aside significant um issues because they make us feel uncomfortable so therefore we won't look at them because then if if i don't look at them they don't exist i won't feel that way that will make me feel better but it's not fixed anything it's actually made us feel better in that instance but if there really is a, a, a risk involved in that thing we can't with that crisis scenario we can't look at then we're all right until the day that crisis happens and then we're in the midst of it we've done nothing to prepare so it's really important that we're always making sure that our smart thinking is engaged that we're managing our emotions so that we can look uh, a crisis in the face uh, and say actually is this an issue is this dangerous is this a challenge how do i need to manage this um and and recognize that if we if we're not consistently working with the emotions working to de-escalate those that actually our natural reaction will be to to put aside important and, and, and serious information that warns us of crises put it to one side so it doesn't have a negative effect on us and miss the information that could actually help us save our organization or better manage a crisis that we're facing and it's that denial that holds us back um and i i've dealt with the workplace anxiety and depression from a uh, from a personal point of view as well as from a leadership point of view and talking to a mentor of mine three four years ago and he said to me anxiety is the emotion of growth and it's that anxiety that we feel the increased heart rate the sweaty palms the discomfort 
it means we're actually at the edge of our comfort zones. It means actually we're going to take a step forward into something we have into uncharted territory. And this is what leadership is truly about. You know, it's about going up front and being out there. The anxiety, I, from my personal perspective, the anxiety really turns into kind of a general anxiety. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of um, diagnosis. That's when we are in that denial and we never face up to it because it will always sit there in the back of our mind. And the next time we go for a job interview, oh, oh, oh no, I won't do it. The, and that level of anxiety steadily builds up and it compounds over time. So again, if you scale that up to people dealing with crisis situation in their businesses, I'm not going to deal with that situation because it feels uncomfortable. I'll deny it. Then something happens. Then your business shuts down mm. um, yeah. because you haven't faced into what it is it's teaching you. Yeah, uh, there were so many things you covered in there, and one element that also popped in there was you talking about kind of that future proofing, how we communicate to people. Okay, are we communicating in in a way to people where they will follow our lead, where they where they will support themselves, where we're teaching them how to manage their own and, and take the lead on their own feelings, etc. Um, and again, you know, something else I learned was the future is just a made up version of what might happen with your imagination and your emotions escalating and de-escalating bits that it thinks are most important at that point in time. But in truth, it is all just fantasy. You, you know, you, some of it may be right, some of it might be wrong. But your brain has no way to differentiate between what's actually real and what's actually right now. So your brain starts going into overload. Your brain chemicals are all over the place. And, yeah. you know, that, that, again, it comes down to that what's the be next best action? Well, if you haven't engaged and invoked your your smart thinking, that logical, mm. that some of that rational, or some of the, as well as some of the emotional content, you're not going to make a decision that's going to be supportive of the whole, of the organisation, of the company. And it's not just yeah. going to be a detriment to yourself. It's going to be the people that are in your network. It's going to be people that are next to you. Now... And the last point before we start getting into those, you know, I was going to ask, and I think you covered it, how do you communicate in a crisis? You've covered that eloquently. Uh, the communication in the crisis is about listening. It's about the direct questions. And some of the key things you were talking about, we've designed a, a new model, a, a deck of coaching cue cards, per se, for the, the leader, for the mental health first aider. And we've designed it on a model called MIND. So M is all about mindset. And that is... Where's your, where are you right now? How are you looking at it? Are you in the fog bank? I is for importance. So it's actually what are you putting the importance on? No, mm. where are you putting your focus of attention? And actually, is there a better place or a better angle to be putting that importance? So if you step out of the fog bank, okay, what's important? Well, actually, I need to get there. Okay, what have you got available to you that's going to make that? Shifting that. And then the N, which for us is in the mind, is network. Who's around you? Who's in your crisis team? Who's in your support mechanism? Who can you learn from? Who can help you in this moment of time? Now, if, you know, based on the actions that you might take or you're going to take, who else does it impact? Uh, and what's mm. the, you know, uh, and, and how does it affect their lives? Those sorts of things. And then that D part you talked about from stress testing, it's coming up with actions. D stands for direction. Actually, based on all that information, what do I want to do right now that helps me to move forward and progress uh, and, and create that next positive steps? So I can start creating an action plan. And again, I, I, I can't remember the quote from the, the singer. And it says, action is the antidote to despair. Mm. You know, it's, the, it's the inaction. It's the stuck in the moment that causes the problem from a company point of view, personal point of view, leadership point of view. Inaction is going to cause us the biggest problem. Um, yeah. 
shift the focus, come out of the fog bank, look to see what you've got available, where you're going. What am I putting the importance on? Is it on the fog bank or is it getting home? Mm. Uh, who's going to help me do this? Who's in my network? And okay, then take action and move it. Uh, yeah. Like you talked about from those FBI models and, and those ideas, phenomenal, you know, having this questioning skill to, of yourself to make it happen. Mm. <laughs> Huge value in this. Huge value in what you do and how you're helping people and what you've already done. How old are you now, Ross? Uh, 40, just coming out 46. 46. A life yeah. well lived with a lot more to bring yet to come. Um, phenomenal. Um, from me and from everyone else's lives that you have touched and you know, all those people, thank you. you know, to you, appreciate everything that you've done so far. Crikey, there's another at least 50, 55 years in, in both of <laughs> us to, to create more huge impacts. <laughs> um, big question from me then. You're, you know, you're, you're doing this crisis thinking, this smart thinking, you're supporting businesses that are going through uh, stress testing and curated tensions you know, and, and, and supporting training potentially of people that are still having these conversations. How do you make behavioral change stick? Well, the reality is that, you know, people can go and they can do training and they can hear the, the right messages with the right actions on them a hundred times but actually until we start to internalize it it's of course going to have no effect it's lots of people go away from trainings and go this is fantastic this is really good stuff never do anything about it after maybe a week you know and it's uh, so the, the key really is that um it's a it's there are a number of different things i think um it ultimately it always starts with thinking and it starts with thinking whether it's in ourselves or when it, whether it's with other people. Um, I, you know, when I'm, when there's a, a behavioral change, so for example, the, the whole issue of dealing with our re-engaging our smart thinking of facing how anxiety is, of course, a, a regular kind of enemy, if you like, for us dealing with crisis negotiation because of the risks to others and ourselves and all the things that are going on, you know, sometimes many times a day. Um, it, we realized that actually we had to be very intentional. It was kind of like within enforced repetition. We were really intentional to step in and to practice these skills on a regular basis when we didn't need them. So that when we did, as you kind of, again, mentioned earlier on, we step back to how we've been trained. And if we, we step back to, to our, our learning, we kind of fall back on those things we've been trained in and so we know that actually that's not the place necessary to, to learn now for a lot of people you know who are perhaps listening to this who are already in a crisis it doesn't mean these things aren't effective they massively are to use there and then but actually for behavioral change to see change within us it's about us practicing those important and effective things particularly about how we know um, ourselves how we understand ourselves actually taking time out of busy schedules to to actually go what am i feeling how am i doing what are the thoughts that these feelings i'm having are connected with are these thoughts positive are they effective actually beginning to change those thoughts and as again as i said earlier on Part of my toolkit, certainly for changing thoughts, is actually declaration. So thoughts, yes, will affect what comes out of my mouth, but I can also, if I if I have an intention to change a, a negative way of thinking, I can also intentionally uh, make the right 
words come out of my mouth. I can actually start to make declaration. I can start to declare over my life certain things, certain ways of thinking. And as I'm doing it, I'm hearing it, I'm receiving it, I'm thinking it because I'm having to speak it. I'm actually building that in a deeper and deeper way into my way of living. And so therefore I'm beginning to, to develop that behavioral change. And, and that can be true with, with our, our, with our teams, but, uh, you know, behavioral change when it comes to, to helping others, again, it's, you know, there's a practice of actually how people are thinking, but sometimes we need to actually share to, to understand how we're thinking. So this is where listening is such a powerful tool in behavioral change. It seems, uh, it seems almost counterintuitive sometimes. Someone used, uh, people used to say to me quite regularly uh, when I told them I was a crisis negotiator, oh, you must be brilliant at talking to people. And I, I used to say to them, well, actually, no, more often than not, I get my words muddled up. I, I listen to myself sometimes when I've got a recording, and I think that made no sense whatsoever. You know, there's a kind of babbling of words that sometimes fall out of my mouth. But actually, the key for crisis negotiation is listening. It's not being an effective speaker. It's about being an effective listener. And so behavioral change in others comes so often from us listening to them. It's about them hearing themselves um hearing their thoughts out loud they speak what they're thinking and often when they begin to speak out what they're thinking they begin to realize that that's a good thought or that's a terrible thought what on earth was i thinking that for it, it com comes out to the cold light of day and in a sense we're we're ta taking the, the fog bank again we're taking that thought from within the fog bank where it was hidden away in all this emotion and they're drawing it out into the sunlight and they're seeing it for what it really is and as they see it for what it really is, then actually gives them the best opportunity to either embrace that thought because it's a good thought or to um, reject that thought and replace it because it's a poor thought. And uh, just one thing that came to my mind earlier when you were speaking, uh, thinking about the future, you know, it's not, it's, it's not made yet. It's a kind of construct of our imagination at this moment in time. Um, when we look, when we often look about taking a thought and uh, uh, cognitive reappraisal, when we take a thought and we take a negative thought to make it more positive or at least more neutral than it was, um, one of the comments I used to have quite regularly was people would say, "Well, surely we're just um, we're making it up," and I'm saying, "Well, yes, that positive thought is a figment of your imagination. It's it's not the facts in front of you." It's your appraisal of what you feel those facts mean. But if you think about it, the negative thought is exactly the same thing. It is a figment of our imagination. It is our opinion of the facts. So the, facts is, the fact is this certain situation is happening. Yes, it's a crisis. It, it, it is a, a time of intense difficulty or danger. But our opinion of it can be can vary widely from the, the very negative to the very positive, depending on actually how we interpret the facts and how we then apply them. So our thinking is, is central to behavioural change. We, we know that. But I, I just think that it's about being intentional. Uh, if we're not intentional, we can, we can dream about, you know, this great thing changing our lives for the better but it remains a dream. We have to be intentional. We have to take hold of something. We have to keep coming back to it. We have to kind of keep embracing something, a way of thinking, a, a, a way of acting, a way of living, until actually it becomes part of who we are. Beautifully put.
and I think there's two elements in that is I think, I think a lot of trainers do this is when we get to the beginning of a training course, we get people to write their goals down at the beginning of the session. What do you mm. want to get from today? So we create that intention and they put it up in their own handwriting. And that's a categoric rule for me is when you're setting your intentions, they have to be written in your own handwriting because you cannot delegate your goals to somebody else. Life rule, you know, right there. But it's interesting when you talk about that declaration, the thing that popped into my head uh, from what we do is, is actually how do you want to learn? How, you know, what experience do you want to have from today's training session? What do you want to get from this course? Um, and making that declaration out loud. You know, how do you want to learn today? What is, you know, what is your expectation? What values are you going to bring to today to make today a success? And saying it out loud so, it's instead, so you can hear it yourself and kind of creating that feedback loop for the rest of the day, for the rest of that session that you're sitting in. Huge, yep. huge. Yeah. Ross, huge value from today. Yeah. yeah thank you huge thanks as i said earlier for what you've already done the impact that you've created in so many people's lives and the ripple effect of that thank you for the value that you shared here for today last question from me where can people find you so you can find me on uh, my website which is discoveryhope.com so that's discoveryhope.com uh, and i also have a um as, as part of my kind of crisis proofing, crisis preparing, I thought it would be really valuable to put some of this stuff into an online course. Little did I know what was about to happen. Uh, it wasn't through intention, it was by accident, but two weeks before this big crisis happened that we're currently facing, um, I put my, uh, some of my workshop that I've been doing regularly called Smart Thinking for Times of Crisis into a course on Udemy, and that's called Crisis Leadership Skills, Smart Thinking for Times of Crisis. So you can find that on Udemy. Ah, I left it on mute. Technical problems. Um, look, go and find, thank you, Ross. He was waving at me, trying to sign to me to make that happen. Look, go and have a look at Ross's website. Go and have a look at the content that he's sharing. There is some super fundamental thinking in there that is gonna help businesses, entrepreneurs, leaders, leaders of all shapes and forms, get that clarity of thinking to get the results they need. And go and have a look at the course. You know, this is a time of crisis right now for COVID-19. We get that. However, in 24 weeks' time, 56, there will be another situation on someone else's desk causing them, you know, this to, to, to reduce this capacity for smart thinking. The steps, the guides, and the approaches that Ross's offers are hugely beneficial. Thank you very much for listening. There's also been, um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the mental health coaching cue cards that we, we're, we're building at the moment. They will be available very shortly. There will be a link for these in, in the comments below. So please, you know, they are a huge amount of value for what they are. If you want to get help as a leader to ask the right questions in a crisis situation, some of the questions are going to be in there. Go and get the mindset training as well from Ross and those approaches and combine those two elements to create something exceptional that is going to make you stand out in these situations and create the training that you will fall back on in that times of crisis. Thank you so very much. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers, Ross.